I'll turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. <clears throat> Let's pray before we go to God's Word. Father Jesus taught us that everyone who hears his words and does them is like the wise man who builds his house upon the rock. And we pray this morning that your spirit would open our ears to both hear and that you would mobilize our hands to do the words of Christ so that Trinity Reformed Church would be a people with a strong foundation, like a rock that is Jesus. And that when the storms come and the winds of doctrine blow, that we would have a sure footing to stand firm. And root us in Christ, I ask. Build us up in him. Father, I pray too uh, for the eldership of this body. You've bestowed on us the awesome and terrifying honor of equipping your people for the work of ministry. The care of souls is something too weighty for us to bear alone. So may we always rest our burdens on the shoulders of the great shepherd. And even as we toil to present uh, the saints as mature in him, uh, may this be done in our lives and in the church. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. It's in his name we ask. Amen. Please stand for the reading of God's word. We will read uh, from Colossians 1, verse 28 through chapter 2, verse 7. The Apostle Paul, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. As you may have noticed, we're taking a break from... Galatians this morning, and I've been kind of waiting for a good spot in Galatians to take a break, and I thought the end of chapter 3 would be a good spot. Um, and, and typically, we, for our visitors, go through books line by line, but this is a bit unusual for us. Most of the time, we are, are taking apart the text and seeing what God has to say. But occasionally, I think it's appropriate to take a topic and, and consider in light of things going on in the family of God, um, what God has to say about that subject. And so this really, this morning, is something of a, a family matter. We're, we're going to try to do something new as a body of Christ. And so this message is about that. And if you've read the title in your bulletin, it is entitled, Visitation in the Family of God. 
Um, so as elders, we've been discussing for a while the idea of including visitation, this um, practice that our, our Puritan and, and Presbyterian forefathers practiced regularly, and we would like to begin practicing that um, that, that practice. So um, we, we've read through a book as elders entitled um, The Elder and His Work. It's written by David Dixon, a uh, old Scottish elder. He was not a pastor. He was a lay elder or what we would call a ruling elder. And he strongly encourages and emphasizes over and over again in that book the value of elders being in the homes of the people, um, both in a social context, but also in a formal capacity to provide spiritual oversight for the people of God. And so we've become convinced that this is something that we as elders need to be doing. Um, And so we've put together a schedule for this year so that every family, including the elders' families, is visited twice a year, once by me and once by one of the ruling elders, Rob, uh, Brian, or Michael. And uh, we've kind of already started. I visited Meredith once, um, and it was a joy to me. I I don't know about them, but... (laughs) 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 They gave me apple crisp, so that was, you know... Um, so, of course, in the body of Christ, social visits are wonderful, and I'd love to see that increase, you know, everyone being in each other's homes and elders being in each other's homes. That could only be a good thing. Um, but here this morning, we're talking about this specific practice of, of a purposed, scheduled visitation that is formal in nature and is for the purpose of spiritual oversight. Uh, now, that may sound kind of intimidating to you, and, and I, I was talking to my dad about this, and he, he grew up in the Christian Reformed Church. I was baptized in the Christian Reformed Church, and, he, and, and they practiced this practice, and uh, he said people really kind of dreaded these visits because it was almost uh, an, an intimidating interrogation into the spiritual lives of people, and that's not our desire at all. We don't want it to be intimidating. We're not interested in policing the morality of the saints but in love we do want to do our duty as elders to faithfully shepherd and oversee his sheep now uh we're new to this likely you all are new to this and it will take time um, to develop into the form that it will eventually take but i and it may be awkward at first but i think in time i i trust that it will develop into what I believe will be one of the most treasured aspects of our fellowship. So what I'll present this morning, uh, um, as really all sermons are, because it's the Word of God, is something of an ideal. And of course, I don't expect us to reach the ideal immediately. This is a process. But this is an overview of, of the foundations of what the Word has to say on the topic of visitation. Um, so as we go through this, as after I speak on it, as we begin this process, um, I encourage you to, to help us as we figure it out. Give us feedback and, and grow with us into this new aspect of ministry in our church and keep us accountable. Um, once I get it finalized, I hope to publish the, the uh, schedule for everyone to have. 
Um, so what I'd like to do is give you a brief overview first of the history of visitation in the church and then spend some time, the bulk of our time, looking at the biblical and theological foundations for the practice of visitation and then wrap up with a few uh, practical details of what, what visitation may look like in our time and our place. Uh, and as always, there's so much ground uh, we could cover that we won't. Um, so if you're interested to do more study, I can supply you uh, with more resources. And feel free to ask as many questions as you want going forward. So well, first of all, what is the history of visitation in the church? And I'm borrowing much of this from a, a good book I read probably half of this week's short book taking heed to the flock is what is called by peter de jong i believe he's an orthodox presbyterian um, guy um, so taking heed to the flock and it, he he tells us that visitation um has been most often practiced by people in the reformed tradition um, over the past 500 years. And something that Reformed folks are often accused of is, is kind of terminating our historical roots at, at the Reformation and going no further, but that's not the case at all. And in fact, if we understand the Reformation correctly, we understand that the entire purpose was to push reform uh, and to reform the church back to its biblical, its apostolic, and its historic roots. Calvin and the other reformers were constantly referencing the church fathers in their writings. And we see in the history of the church, Clement of Alexandria, Cyprian, Chrysostom, Ambrose, and Augustine, all, all fathers from the first 400 years of the church, um, they're all, they all speak to the value of church officers ministering in the homes of the people of God. And in fact, uh, De Jong says that it was actually one great regret of Augustine that he didn't do as much of that as he should have. Over time, however, the emphasis shifted from spiritual oversight out of love for souls, and the focus became governing the lives of individuals in Mother Church. Spiritual oversight gave way to a sacramental system and a system of, of control, and the confessional filled the role of visitation. So instead of elders going to homes to encourage saints on their pilgrimage toward the promised land, people could go instead to the priest who had the authority to absolve sins and, and prescribe penance for them. As Luther began to break with the Roman Catholic Church, um, he actually still maintained a practice of, of the confessional. But Calvin took the Reformation further, as we know, breaking entirely with the practice of the confessional. And in Geneva, elders visited homes of every member four times a year, which Calvin would have liked to have done communion every week, but he wasn't allowed, but they did it four times a year. So they were visited prior to communion um, every year. Our Presbyterian and, and Puritan forefathers took up where Calvin left off, and they continued to practice um, home visitation. In our time, visitation is, seems to have fallen on, on hard times. But I think the history of uh, visitation there, as brief as it 
was is to, is helpful because for one thing we see the church has always had some form of visitation church officers in the homes of the people for spiritual oversight and two that the reformed practice of visitation is not an attempt to replace the confessional but it's actually a return to biblical apostolic and historic roots so We'll go forward now into into really what is visitation? What are the foundations, the biblical and theological foundations for visitation? And let's just begin with a simple definition. It's one I came up with, and it's not by any means comprehensive, but I think it covers some basics for us this morning. So my definition, visitation is a supplementary means for Christ's under-shepherds to stimulate spiritual flourishing and maturity in Christ's flock. I'll say that again because we're going to go through it piece by piece. Visitation is a supplementary means for Christ's under-shepherds to stimulate spiritual flourishing and maturity in Christ's flock. So let, let's go through that. Um, there's three three basic pieces. First of all, it, it's supplementary. Visitation is a supplementary means. Um, so I wonder what, what you would say if, if asked, um, what is the prevailing evangelical mindset about ministry? And I'd say one word that comes up often is the word relationship. We have these cliches, relationship and not religion. Uh, we, we develop relationships and then maybe we talk about the gospel. We, we do life together. And actually, I think relationship should be the focus. Uh, but the most important thing in the Christian life is that we commune with God and that we commune with our brothers and sisters. The question is, and where we might differ from, from common evangelicalism, is what do we mean by relationship and how do we get there? <clears throat> so the primary means we commune with God, and more importantly, He communes with us, is through His ordinary means of grace. Through the Word, through sacrament and prayer. The Lord's Day assembling of the saints is the, the meat and potatoes of the Christian life. That's what we need. Vitamin supplements are good. Snacks are, are good. Um, late night wine and cheese is good. But those things are, are supplementary to the three square meals. So the ordinary means of grace, the Lord's Day fellowship of the saints, word, sacrament, and prayer is the meat and potatoes square meals of the Christian life. That is how God communes with us. Notice the, the focus of ministry in the early church. Luke recounts for us right after Pentecost what ministry consisted of. The apostles' teaching, he says in Acts 2. And the fellowship, breaking of bread, that is the Lord's Supper, and the prayers. Word, sacrament, fellowship, and prayer is very simple. Ministry and life together, discipleship, can't stop at the Lord's Day gathering. 
Instead, it should pour over into the rest of, of life. I, I grew up in a home where we had three square meals, and that was the center of family life. We gathered for meals. But that wasn't the only interaction we had with each other. And in fact, those mealtimes drew us closer together and made our other interactions better. The ministry of the apostles certainly extended beyond the Lord's day. In Acts 20, 20, Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders, he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Also, 1 Thessalonians 2, 8, Paul again. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. I think that's an incredibly important verse for understanding ministry in the church. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also ourselves, our own selves, because you had become so affectionately desirous of us, or dear to us. The gospel is something that knits us together, and as we grow in love for Christ, his saints become more and more dear to us, so that we long to be with them. We want to share communion with them. We we seek out fellowship with them. We want to listen to them. We want to know them. We want to be known by them, to hear their joys and their burdens, and to share in both. And we want to give ourselves to them in service. And so that's something of how I would envision envision, uh, visitation, is that it is a, that is, I chose that word carefully in my definition, a, one of many supplementary means to grow in communion with each other. Far from being an intimidating interrogation into the obedience of the saints, it is one formal means elders in the church can bring uh, by which the, they can bring the ministry of word and prayer and fellowship into the homes of the people of God. So that's the first aspect of that, that definition I provided, is that it is a supplementary means. <coughs> Second element is that elders are under shepherds of Christ. Again, the definition, visitation is a supplementary means for Christ's under-shepherds to stimulate spiritual flourishing and maturity in Christ's flock. Um, Elders are under-shepherds of the great shepherd. As such, the office of elder carries with it two things. Uh, One thing is a great and weighty sense of responsibility, and the other is authority in the church. Some, both things that are woefully ignored in our day. Responsibility and authority. So the first thing is responsibility. Uh, there are a few verses in the Bible that really make me stop and think as an elder, especially a youthful elder in the church. One of them is Acts 20, 28 and 29. Again, Paul to the Ephesian elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Elders in Christ's church truly have a heavy responsibility 
He says it's to oversee the sheep, to care for them and guide them, to protect them, to fend off wolves, false teachers. And it's a calling to be taken with with the utmost seriousness. I think whatever vows we've taken in life, with the possible exception of marriage, they don't compare to the weight of the ones we take when we're called to the office of elder. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to take the job of, of say, being a security guard for the child of, of a king. I wouldn't want that responsibility. But the church is far more precious than a single royal child. Paul describes it in Acts 20 as the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. That's valuable. Likewise, if the king himself commissioned us to the task of guarding the child, how seriously we would take that calling? He says, who commissions the overseers? Paul says, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. One other verse gives me pause. Hebrews 13:7. It's not the only other one, but it is one other one. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. I'm, I'm doing what? Keeping watch over souls as someone will have to give an account? I mean, if, if Kelly puts my shoes in the closet, I lose them because I don't know where they went. And here he wants me to keep watch over souls as one who will give an account. It's no wonder, James says, not many of you should become teachers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. It's a serious responsibility. I want you to know that, that the office of elder is no corporate board member, no advisory committee member, no administrative policy-making office. We are charged with the care of souls. And I praise God that Christ himself is the chief shepherd, and I'm not. And I'm a mere under-shepherd, and I praise him that my feeble efforts are viewed in Christ by God. Otherwise, I would despair entirely. I would step down right now. But that knowledge that we're accepted in Christ should never allow us as Christians or as elders to rest on our laurels. It should instead spur us on all the more. As Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that it was in that was in me. So I hope that gives you something of the seriousness of the weight of responsibility that an elder is called to in Christ's church. The other thing is authority, something that's often confused in the church today. Um, as often the case, responsibility and authority go hand in hand. In Hebrews 13, it's because the leaders have watched over their souls that the people are to submit to them. The words that the New Testament uses to describe the office of elder communicate authority and responsibility by definition. They're called overseers, shepherds. They're people who are to lead and guide the church, not according to their own whims and wills, but according to the word of Christ, the good shepherd. 
The office of elder is a ruling office. 1 Timothy 5.17 The elders, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, of course, authority does not belong to us or spring up from within ourselves. It's always Christ's authority that we have as ambassadors of his will and his word. It can go no farther than that. This idea of authority in the church may give us hives as Americans. Um, The idea that someone else may share in the responsibility for my soul might make us itchy or angry. I'll take care of myself. You take care of yourself. Stay out of my business. And If I go to hell, that's my problem, and it's no business of yours. That's the attitude. Unfortunately, or fortunately, the New Testament doesn't say that that's true. I think such an attitude is more the influence of Anabaptist doctrine on Western evangelicalism and really the American democratic individualistic idealism creeping into the church than it is biblical. De Jong, the man who, who wrote the book uh, I'm referencing here in this, this sermon, um, he comments, this was written in 1901, The individual, as a result of the insidious influence of much modern philosophy, regards himself as the final authority in spiritual matters. He claims for himself the inerrant right of deciding how and when and where he shall serve God and his fellow men. So the authority of the church has fallen on hard times in our day. Due to the plethora of opinions and no accountability, sheep have become consumers. Pastors and elders have been turned into salesmen, CEOs, and marketers. The customer's always right, and if they're not pleased, they're going to shop somewhere else. The tail is definitely wagging the dog in our day. And strange as it may sound, elders of the church do have authority at least in a biblical way, authority on spiritual matters insofar as they are communicating the authoritative word of Christ. The tasks of instruction, training, and discipleship are all part of the job description. And by the way, in no way does this biblical doctrine of authority and responsibility of elders do damage to the biblical doctrine of the priesthood of all believers that Michael talked about. In fact, the whole point is that we encourage you to pursue the means of grace on your own, to study the word of God on your own. That's our primary job. And let's not forget either that in a biblically governed church, there's a plurality of elders. There's more than one. And every elder is also a sheep subject to their authority. It is Christ who chose to appoint officers in his church. It was his idea to give the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. 
Um, so part of what household visitation allows us to do as elders is to fulfill our calling and to be obedient to the calling to oversee spiritually the flock of God. We cannot, as Acts 20:28 20, says, pay careful attention to the flock of God just by our interaction on Sunday morning. And it is our responsibility to know the sheep, to be among the sheep, to correct, to lead, to instruct, and encourage the sheep. And we are meant to know the spiritual condition of the sheep, how they are strong, how they are weak, how to pray for them, how to encourage them. Likewise, as sheep ourselves, we're we're all called to submit to that. Anyone who brushes aside under shepherds of Christ and their authority in the name of Well, I only submit to Christ is not submitting to Christ at all. We should obey our leaders so that they can keep watch over our souls, as Hebrews 13 says, with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to us. So Christ has given us elders and leaders as a gift for our benefit and for our spiritual flourishing and growth and maturity. And that's the final and third part of our definition this morning. <clears throat> is that it, the purpose of it is the spiritual flourishing and maturity of the flock. Um, that, that's why I chose to read Colossians at the beginning of this message. Paul provides there a, a wonderful example of what our goal should be as people of God. And notice the language. I'm going to read through it again. Notice the language about Um, firmness about maturity and also about how Paul works hard despite the supreme sovereignty and the confidence that God is working in the Colossians people so again Colossians 1 28 through 2 7 him that is Christ we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So that's his goal. That's why he's toiling, to present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy. He powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance and of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So that's eight, I just counted them, eight eight references to firmness or maturity, and we could imply more in there. Specific references to firmness and maturity, and that's the goal, is to present the flock of God mature in Christ. That represents the ideal motivation for elders to undertake the task of visitation, to stimulate spiritual flourishing and maturity in the saints. And that is a motivation of love, because the saints have become very dear to us. It's a motivation rooted in the recognition that there's nothing greater of usefulness in the lives of the flock than that they know Christ, that they are rooted in Christ, and that they are growing firm and mature in Christ. 
bad motivations can creep in and corrupt what is good. We know love of self would lead to notions of self-grandeur or abuse of authority. Self-righteousness leads to policing of morality and superior uh, superiority complex. Forgetting the weight of our calling leads to apathy and complacency. Forgetting that Christ is the chief shepherd and we're only under-shepherds leads to domineering over those in our charge when we're supposed to give an example of humility. And really, even something good, a good motivation, can be taken and become a bad motivation. Uh, we here look up to our Puritan and Presbyterian forefathers, but if we're just implementing visitation because we like them and we want to be like them, that's not a good motivation. We must do this task out of love and the desire to see the maturity of the saints. So as elders, we must keep Christ front and center in love, always toiling to point each other toward Christ. And we must remember that as much as we labor and toil, as he says in in, uh, Colossians, he says that he was toiling and struggling with all God's energy that he powerfully worked within him. So I believe it is our genuine motivation in undertaking this new ministry of visitation uh, from a genuine desire to stimulate spiritual flourishing and maturity in Christ's flock. We want to come alongside you and you to come alongside us so that we all stand firm in Christ. So to summarize some of the foundations of Uh, that undergird this practice. Um, Visitation supplements and supports the ordinary means of grace. It's not primary, but it's supplementary. Also, elders are called as not as the shepherd, but as under shepherds into a special position, carrying with it responsibility and authority to care for Christ's sheep. And the purpose of visitation is, and Christian ministry is to root the saints in Christ, which is uh, their spiritual flourishing and maturity. Now, before we close, I just want to take a moment to think about what this might look like in our context. And the frank answer is I don't know exactly yet. <laughs> um, like I said at the start, it will take time to develop what exactly this will look like in our context. However, I think the content of our visits will stand on the foundations that we just talked about. Um, First of all, it may be tempting to make them mere social calls, and and social calls are important and should increase, but, um, you know, we like each other and want to chat, and the atmosphere shouldn't be overly austere. But the express purpose of a formal home elder visit is spiritual oversight of the flock. And given that visitation is supplementary and the most important question or the most important primary thing is the means of grace, the most important questions an elder can ask is about those primary things. How are families making use of the means of grace, both corporately and privately? Have they been neglecting the means of grace? How has God been working through the word and sacraments and prayer in the life of the family? What role do the Bible and and prayer play in the life of the family? And and how does the gospel impact the life of the family and their work and their play in their school? 
There's a thousand things we could look at in terms of spiritual health, and, and we wouldn't look at all of them at once, but over time, we want to oversee the spiritual welfare of the sheep. Also, it's a time for the elder to give himself, as Paul said in First Thessalonians, to give himself to the flock. To give his ear, it's a primarily a listening exercise, to give his ear to the saints, to hear their problems and concerns, their struggles and questions of faith, and to rejoice with them in their joys, and to let them know him as well. To understand more about who he is, what are his interests, his struggles, how does he apply the gospel in his life. So on a very practical level, I think our expectation, generally this has been the case throughout history, is that the whole family, whoever is in the household, is present. And I would expect a meeting to last an hour. Um, There should be a few things every time, prayer, reading of some scripture, and discussion about spiritual flourishing, growth in our lives. Beyond that, the elder may want to communicate something, encouragement, reinforcement, reminder, at times gentle reproof and correction. Uh, He may want to help the saints to put their faith into action. Other activities that might be enjoyable, depending on the capabilities of the elder and and who, who the people present are, would be discussing catechism if there's children, or singing songs if people enjoy that. So I believe that this practice of formal uh, family visitation will really benefit our church in the long run. And and I hope that you're excited about it and not intimidated by it. If you have questions or concerns, please bring them to us. And uh, I'll probably be producing some sort of document about what to expect um, in the near future. And so... um, I'd like to close with a quote from Peter DeJong, Taking Heed to the Flock. I believe it captures the heart of what we're after here. He says, In an age in which individualism is rampant and has wreaked havoc everywhere, it is essential to stress the organic aspect of life. We cannot live without each other. Nowhere is this more valid than in the church among the communion of saints. Where this law of life is understood, the elders do not regard themselves as policemen of the congregation. There is not the duty of trying to uncover all the sins which mar the hearts of God's people who as yet are unperfect, but realizing the almost insurmountable obstacle in the way of a well-rounded Christian life, they visit the families for the purpose of helping all to see their duty more clearly. This makes for the closest possible fellowship between the officers and members of the church on the one hand and between the members among each other on the other. They learn to stand shoulder to shoulder in the great spiritual struggle against the common foe and learn to wage war more successfully. It makes the church makes of the church a truly militant church. As each soldier has his own position and duty and obliges himself to carry it out in strict obedience to the commandments of his superior, so too in the church all members find their calling outlined by Christ and his word. The purpose of the work of the elder is to remind the believers in the name of the commander-in-chief of their personal and social responsibilities. 
Where this is found, the words of the well-known hymn are immortalized in the life of the congregation. Like a mighty army moves the church of God, brothers we are treading where the saints have trod. We are not divided, all one body we, one in hope and doctrine, one in charity. As this is progressively realized in the life of the church, she marches forward from victory to victory in the name of the captain of her salvation. I pray that this will be so for us. Amen. Amen.